Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. These are people who took their marriage seriously, Mm -hmm. but holy cow, the trouble they had. There's no way you get through marriage without the valley. I think you have to buy the package, right? I like what uh, Viola Davis said. She said... You're not married when you walk down the aisle. Your marriage doesn't really start till you're sitting across from this person and he's doing this thing that really annoys you. That's when your marriage starts. That's Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue. All three of us have spent time together in front of cameras, but it's our friendship that goes back decades behind the cameras that's been the source of a lot of laughing and thoughtful conversations over the years. We got together on Zoom a little while ago to talk about their new book, which has a theme that most of us will find pretty fascinating. This is so great to be talking with two of my oldest friends about your latest book about how to make a marriage last. And it's only a couple of days after your own 40th anniversary, right? Right, right. Happy anniversary to both of you. Thank you. So the book is a bestseller, national bestseller. What have you heard from folks who have been reading it? Are, are they saying, oh, my God, I never thought of that, or I've been trying to do that all along and it hasn't worked? <laughs> I, I think, Alan, probably with you and Arlene as well, we don't talk a lot about our marriage ordinarily. We don't, we're not how our marriage is going or how it's doing or anything like that. And mm-hmm. And so I think people who've read the book are thinking that too, that, oh, we never really discussed that before. Um, And so they're getting, they're hearing ways in which to communicate better. And, and the, and that great thing that James Carville said, tell Alan that. Yeah. Carville said, when you find yourself arguing about uh, a Mickey Mouse problem, an unimportant problem, going round and round, it's time for you to say, Kick that can down the road. You know, it sounds like, you know, a cliche, 
but it works. So in other words, the idea is you just postpone it indefinitely. Get off it. Yeah. Well, yeah Get off the issue. It's I mean. not. In other words, you're arguing about, did you send the thing or did I say you didn't send it? You said you'd send it, but you didn't. You know, some silly thing. And you go back, for, back and forth. He also said people have this feeling that everything has to be put on the table. He said everything doesn't have to be put on the table. Some things just don't get resolved. So let it go. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what that sounds like. I know what it means. Yeah. Step around it. Step over it. The hell with it. You know, it's just we, we, we make our lives about these things, or not our lives, but our days or our hours about stuff that tomorrow you can't even remember. What was that thing? What were we talking about? You don't remember it. Uh, the other uh, issue that jumped out at me was jealousy. Right. And uh, I know something about that. <clears throat> and I, I can say that it is draining, first of all. You know, you've got to get rid of it or you're going to just be exhausted. You're going to fall down by the end of the week. <laughs> and an interesting uh, story came up with... Well, tell your story. It's better to tell your own story. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're working it out right in front of us. <laughs> well, my jealousy, uh, I mean, one of the moments of real jealousy happened, and this is why I'm so smart about it, <laughs> uh, uh, saying it can drain you. Marlo made a movie with Chris Christopherson. Well, my dear, <laughs> I mean, I'm at home. <laughs> with all kinds of things going on in my head. You know, they're in a balloon somewhere <laughs> over the... Anyway, but it's amazing what your brain will do to you uh, when you're jealous. And... Well, 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 what? Well, now can I tell them about... You can tell them anything you want. Go ahead. <laughs> I, love, I love how this is a demonstration of the book. Right. <laughs> so... Um, uh, Mike Consuelos, uh, married to Kelly Ripa, is making a movie or working in Boston. And he's wondering what's going on with my wife. And he calls her. And she said something innocuous, like, oh, I'm, I'm cleaning the toilets, you know. And he just, he thought that was a, what? That's a kind of a phony. Now, all things are going around in his head at the time. So he gets a plane, and without telling her, he flies home to New York, goes to their apartment, goes up the elevator, and tells the doorman, just tell her there's flowers, there's flowers, flowers yeah. coming. He goes, he gets out at his floor. She's got the door open, waiting for the flowers. He runs right past her. <laughs> <laughs> because he's looking for the tall, dark stranger <laughs> hiding behind the drapes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I re I thought that was so, so honest. But it's what jealousy can do to you. And it is so unnecessary. And it's really something you've got to kick down the road like a can. <laughs> and I, as I remember, they, they tell that story in your book. Yes. And... Uh, and and I think Arlene and I told the opposite kind of story. I can't remember if we told you. I was making a movie in Toronto, and this very attractive actress and I were 
in a shower scene together. And the only place we could find to shoot the scene was in uh, in our own apartment, my own apartment, my our apartment, Arlene's and my apartment. And Arlene was out shopping or something, and she came home. And there the two of us are in the shower. And Arlene says, as she passes by, are you going to be finished by lunch? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Good for her. There's kind of like the lack of jealousy there, which is uh, nice. It's comfortable, both, both of us. It proves that jealousy is in your head. It's not what the other person is doing. I mean, if you're in a shower with a beautiful woman, even though there are people with cameras taking pictures, um, still, if you don't have that jealousy bug in you, you it, it, it won't phase you. So I'm curious, you interviewed 40 couples, and I'm comparing those interviews to what Tolstoy said in Anna Karenina, which is all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh-huh. Now, I never, I never understood what that meant. I mean, I, why, why would happy families all be happy the same way? But let's test it out. Did you find there was one common theme that made 40 couples happy, but diverse reasons for being unhappy? Um, the thing that I felt was common among the happy long-time married couples. They both took the marriage seriously. They both realized that in the cloud of lust that usually accompanies a wedding. That's a great phrase. (laughs) And they both realized that this was not a lifetime feeling. That, Uh, you know, sooner or later... No, that it wasn't the only feeling. Yeah. Let's not discount the value of lust. No, <laughs> no I don't want to. But, but let's understand that it is not a 7 and 24 feeling and that all marriages involving two different people will create certain frictions, problems, yeah. and anticipate that. And if yeah. you can accommodate these differences, these valleys that all marriages go through. I feel a little negative, you know, going on like this, but... No, that's not negative at all. No, no, it's realistic. What what Phil is saying, I just would like to build on, that they all took it very seriously, and in that way, they weren't looking for an escape route. People get sick, people lose their money, there's infidelity, there's there's drug addiction, there's alcoholism, all the things, everything that could possibly happen has happened to the couples in this book. Not all of them, but... Well, yeah, but at least one thing happened to each couple, right. So the point is, is that when those things happen, some people who don't make it in a marriage run away. The challenge is too scary. They don't know how to do it. There's a fear about, or or they don't want to have to be bothered with this thing. They don't want to deal with somebody who's sick. They don't want to deal with somebody's alcoholism, so they leave. Um, These people all went through that. They went through the fire of that. They did not look for the escape route. Kira Sedgwick said it rather succinctly. She said, when you get married, you have to know there is no plan B. That's a tiny little sentence with a huge uh, bucket load of meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. If there is no plan yeah. B, then you will struggle to get back, get your marriage back up on its feet 
when it gets slammed by any of these unaccepted, uh, unexpected challenges that blow you over, you know? You know, it's so interesting to me that we're social animals. We're, we seem to be content, for the most part, as, as part of a group. When, when we have to live with one person day and night, it's much harder work, it seems. Uh, you know, whether you're locked in a prison cell with the other person or in a marriage. Yeah. Not to, not to make them identical, but sometimes sometimes people feel a, a lack of freedom because somebody is uncomfortable with some way they have of behaving or something like that. But it sounds like everybody accepted the idea that work was a, was part of it. I don't know that they accepted. I have to tell you the truth. I didn't. I I went into marriage to feel just th- being completely starry eyed. I'd fallen in love literally for the first time. Uh, before that, I'd had boyfriends, but I'd never. You know, I was forty two when I got married, so I was you know not. Uh, I only had my toe in the water of a relationship. Well, let me ask you something. I, I've heard you say many times that you felt before you got married that you didn't ever want to get married. What flipped the switch? Uh, we had a, a, a very chemical reaction to each other, which, which obviously is still there. And we, we, we were able to build on that. I mean, a lot of people have a chemical reaction, have a lot of sexual excitement, but it'll burn out if it doesn't have anything else. And mm-hmm. so it didn't burn out because we had values alike. We had a lot of other things alike. But I also think what changed, Alan, and as a as we are all feminists, I can say the world changed too. And I realized that the definition of marriage was a very, for want of a better word, constipated one, in my opinion. I needed a roomier place. And so the world changed a lot. I realized, I grew up and realized in my late 30s somewhere that you could define your own marriage. It didn't have to be the marriages that you saw before. In fact, when Phil and I got married, he was living in Chicago, raising four sons and doing a show every day. And I was in L.A. and I was very active in those years. I produced about 12 movies for television right in a row, many of which I starred in and many that I didn't. So I was very, my production company was very active. So we were going back and forth, married, we were going back and forth. And an aunt of mine said, that's not a marriage. And I thought Mm -hmm. to myself, this is why I never married, because I used to buy her definition of what a marriage is. We had our own definition. We could be married and we could not be living together and be commuting and, and each having our own careers, pretty much what you did on MASH, going back and forth. We were doing that. We were each doing that every single weekend. So all those things, plus the fact that I met a man who who understood that I was as ambitious and, and as talented and as independent of a thinker as he was. Without that, I mean, that's a lot that had to happen. Uh, well, we were lucky. We had, I'll speak for myself, I had a exposure to a lot of different ideas different people, what their goals were, where they were, what they felt about this or that. And that's, a, that's so much, uh, that's a great preparation for marriage. You know, it, it sounds like some of the 
best aspects of interviewing somebody, which you both have done a lot of, Marlo in her books, and you filled thousands of people on your television show. But some of the things that I think work really well in an interview work well in a marriage, too. Like wanting the person you're interviewing to look good, to be curious about them, to be curious about your mate is to confer a certain amount of dignity onto them that you might not if it, if you just take them for granted. That's an interesting yeah, topic. I agree. You know, because I am curious about what Phil thinks, and he is curious about my opinion. I'll often be in my study working, and he'll come in with the New York Times and say, have you read this? You've got to hear this. And he'll sit down and read to me a, 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 an opinion pay, piece that really got to him. He he wants not only to read it to me, he wants me to have read it, he wants to know what I think of it. He's looking forward to my reaction to it. That uh, That's something that I hope every couple has, because if you don't have that interest and curiosity about what your mate's going to think about this thing, um, you're missing out on a lot. And that's a, that's a, a meeting of the minds, a, a, an overlapping of the minds. I, I don't know what to call it, but it certainly is, he wants to He wants to see my face when he reads me this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's well said. Yeah, the curiosity about what the other person, how the other person evaluates things, and also just plain curiosity about who they are. After 63 years of marriage yesterday, I heard from Arlene something about her childhood that I don't remember ever hearing before. And it makes me interested to know how she became who she is. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm always learning new stuff. At a dinner table, if she's at the other end of the table and there's a whole bunch of people talking in between, I strain to hear what she's saying because she usually says something I never heard before. So what about the other people in your book? What, what were some of their ideas about what makes a marriage work for them. I mean, like I was thinking of Judith Viorst, who said she thinks a really important thing in a marriage is a double bed. I, I don't think I could stand a double bed. We, we, we'd be knocking all over each other. But she said it's hard to be mad at somebody when your tushies are touching. <laughs> but I also liked what she said was that to accept the other person for who they are we we always say that. It sounds like an obvious thing to say, but we don't really. <clears throat> we all are trying to get the other person to be a little bit more like us. So how do we do that? What what are the details of that? How do we keep it from being general advice to a manual of how to go about it? Because it's not so easy to accept a person who you find annoying from time to time. Right. Well, I think you have to buy the package, right? I, yeah, I yeah. like what uh, Viola Davis said. She said, you're not married when you walk down the aisle. Your marriage doesn't really start till you're sitting across from this person and he's doing this thing that really annoys you. And you think to yourself, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to live with this. That's when your marriage starts. And it's true. When, 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 when you do something that annoys the other person, that's the point in which you need to say to yourself, he's not me, okay? And I'm not him. 
You know, you remind me when I when I wrote the movie The Four Seasons, I had a scene where my character was describing to the other guy some of the things that led to what Phil was talking about before, valleys and peaks in the marriage, low points. And one of the low points was she has this habit, my character said, I wasn't drawing it on my real life. The character said she has this habit of clicking her teeth when she eats, and it drives me nuts. What do you do about that? Now, my character in the movie just learned to accept it. That's all you can do is accepted. You can't you can say to your spouse, I really don't like it when you do such and such, when you slurp your soup or you you crack your knuckles or whatever it is that annoys people. None of those things are true of Phil, but I've heard people say that. Um so, you know, I had a friend who said that her husband licked his fingers after he ate something like potatoes. I hate that when they do that in movies, I cringe. I know. Uh-huh. And it really bothered her. And she finally got the courage to say, please don't do that. To me, it is just disgusting when you do that. So did he stop? Yeah, okay. he did. You're never going to be him. Start with that given and then accept what it is. Unless it's, you know, disgusting to you, then then say so. We're taking a short break, but when we come back, Marlo and Phil tell me how what they learned from talking with 40 other married couples helped change their own marriage for the better. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. 
but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's patreon.com slash clear and vivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Marlo Thomas and Phil Donahue and how they set out on the adventure that became their book, What Makes a Marriage Last? When we first went out to, to begin to get the stories for this book, and as you know, we interviewed each person, each couple, face-to-face, like a double date. We went out kind of thinking that we were reporters. We didn't define it, but, you know, we kind of felt we had the microphone and all that. But it became apparent immediately that the only way that this was going to work and the and the way that it just happened was that we talked about ourselves too. Yeah. So in talking about ourselves, the other couple spoke about their their selves. We yeah. didn't really have a a list of questions. We had some ideas that we wanted to ask about jealousy or fighting or feel like to ask a question about the other people's their parents' marriages, but basically it was a conversation that sort of ignited, but it ignited a lot by talking about ourselves, which is different than a reporter or an interviewer. Most interviewers, you know, that 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 are interviewing you, they don't say, well, here's the kind of life I'm living. <laughs> they don't do that. But that was, I thought, a very important part of the communication in this book. Yeah, what you did, I think, was something basic to communication, which is you didn't make it an exchange of abstract ideas. You got into a personal exchange. You got connected to the other couple in a way you wouldn't be if you just asked them a list of questions. You were trading human experiences, and that put flesh and bones on it. Whereas if if you said, tell me five things that will make a marriage work, and they say tolerance, uh, you know, acceptance, it would kind of die on the vine. Well, it's that old Indian saying, you know, tell me a story and I'll remember it forever. You know, you you can't you you can't just give somebody a lesson or give them a quotation. It's a story. That's the story that 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 pulls you into it. I think that it, it was a it was a wonderful experience. I mean, it, well, I believe that it has helped our marriage because we've been, we're talking about things that other people said and how how it affects us, like the James Carville saying, you know, kick the can down the road, or or just the fact that about accepting the fact that he's never going to be me. That sounds simple-minded. But I every now and then I have to say to myself, let it alone. Still, after all these years, I find that I'm trying to get Phil to do something the way I want it done. And I, this book has helped me by interviewing all these people. Leave him alone. Let him do it the way he wants to do it. And there are fewer wars. Right. There used to be wars <laughs> that would come out of this kind of uh, disagreement or... Or uh, not acceptance of the yeah, other person. Failure being, to accept. Be right. uh, unaccepting of the fact that I'm running at eight engines all the time and he's laid back. That's the big personality difference. Oh. That's a big personality difference. Rob Reiner talked about that too, that his wife is like that. She's running around all the time doing things and he likes to sit and think. That's where he gets his ideas for, 
his, his the things that he writes and what he's directing. He spends a lot of hours. She says there's a divot in the couch. He sits there for hours thinking. And he has gotten to the point where he's not telling her to sit down and she's not telling him to get up. But that's taken time to not want the other person to have your kind of life energy. It, you don't. And on uh, and working on the book, it worked well because I'm a very impulsive person. Well, you've known me a hundred years, so you know. I'm I'm a person who jumps for the phone. You know, let's, let's get this done. He's the person who says, well, let's just see. Now, do we really want to do that? That has been annoying to both of us in our lives, but it worked on working on the book. It really did. He, he didn't panic when I panicked and I didn't uh, lay back when he wanted to lay back. It complemented each other rather than being a point of friction. What are some of the other ways couples had of avoiding a fight, getting out of a fight? Uh, Ron Howard and his wife, Cheryl, uh, were very specific about what they do. They had been in marriage counseling. So when they're having a difficult time, they put on a tape recorder and they get, each person gets two minutes and they tell their grievances and they have their their argument uh, on tape. And he said, it's amazing how much more civil you get when it's being recorded. And then they'll play it back, not that minute, but later. And he said, you know, one of the first times they did this, he was thinking to himself, she's monopolizing the conversation. She's dominating this. And when he played it back, it was not, she wasn't at all. It was a 50-50 thing. He just was annoyed with her. So to him, it was dominating. But they learned these from, from marriage counselors. And, and several couples uh, go to marriage counseling. Uh, Brian Cranston and his wife, Robin Dearden, when one of them doesn't feel good about the marriage or is having a trouble communicating, if one of them says to the other one, I think we need to go to the therapist, the rule is the other person has to go whether they feel they have to or not. That's their rule. And he said, and invariably when they get there, they learn a lot and, and they're both glad that they went. He said, but that's that's the way they uh, meet up any challenges. They they He said, and, and it's not for a referee, it's for an interpreter. That's what how it helps. He said, and they always come out of those sessions feeling much uh, much better about about everything. They've moved forward, even though one of them didn't even think they needed it. So uh, marriage counseling seemed to be a big... It was. Uh, a lot of people did it. Maybe about 10 of the 40 couples. But what was interesting is the whole book, they, these are people who took their marriage seriously. Mm-hmm. But holy cow, the the trouble they had. There's no way you get through marriage from beginning to may he, she rest without the valleys. You've got um, you've got two people different. You've got uh, two people who perhaps had different motives when they got married. Some women, this is a little sexist, so... Be careful, I'm right I mean, here. I know, I know. Some <laughs> women get married because they're in love with the wedding. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, how how about being the star of the show? A long white dress, everybody tells you how beautiful Kevin, you are. Kevin Bacon talked about that, not in his marriage, but he said he knows so many marriages where it really was about the wedding for people. You know, they made it, he said, and it's the wedding is such a tiny part 
of your, of, your, of your life and of your marriage, but that some people make it all about that grand day. Did you find any uh, significant difference in the way problems were handled, marital problems were handled by gay couples compared to straight couples? No. No, we, in fact, we... Uh, we were interested in the fact that not only same-sex and opposite-sex marriages or um, Baptists, Muslims, Christians, Jews, all we we inter- everybody we interviewed every religion. It seemed um, everybody wants the same thing. They want a safe place. A they want a safe place. They want to be loved unconditionally, and they want to have a deep trust, not just a trust which is big, that your that your mate won't stray. That's, of course, the A number one trust. But all the other trusts, that you can trust your mate with your head, that he, that he or she won't con you into doing things that are convenient for the other person. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, to me, when I never thought about it, about it until we did the book, uh, as we were searching for our own answers to the questions that were coming up, that I realized when I truly fell all the way deeply in love with Phil, because I fell deeply in trust with him, was shortly after my father died, uh, I was offered the national tour of six degrees of separation. And I really needed it emotionally. I needed to put myself, throw myself into work after the, the, the grief I had been going through. Plus the fact it was Lincoln Center, it was Jerry Zachs, the original director, and it was a great part for me, but it was an eight-month national tour. So this wasn't a decision I could make by myself, and, and I was scared about it. I wasn't sure uh, if it was going to be bad for us. So I went to Phil, and he was doing the Donahue show still, so I said, I've laid it all out as I just have for you. And I said, um, I'm a little, you know, I really want your opinion on this. That This is something we're going to have to figure out together. The traveling, the sticking, staying together, the not letting this hurt our marriage in any way. And he said, if I needed this as much as you need it, I'd do it. That to me, it makes me cry to think of it. It meant so much to me. He could have easily swayed me right the other way because I was on the fence. I was concerned about about our marriage. I wanted to take the opportunity, but I didn't want to blow our marriage. He could have easily said, I think that's a little too rough for us because it would have been more convenient for him. He now had to do a lot of traveling as I did, lonely nights as I did. I mean, we had to sacrifice quite a bit for me to take that opportunity. And and I just thought that that this is a person who won't mess with my head. That's a really good way to put it. You you make me wonder how many of the people you talked to were still on their first marriage. Oh, many. Yeah. Uh, uh, gee, I never uh, counted them. But uh, most, I think. Well, the Ted Danson was on his third marriage, uh, and it's and it's thirty years strong, so it's a really good marriage. Well, that 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 speaks well for it because because I just today came across figures that were surprising to me. Apparently, the more marriages you have, the greater your chances are of getting another divorce. Uh, 
By the time somebody's been married three times, the chances of getting divorced are about 75%. I mean, it's really- Bob Woodward too, this is his third marriage and he's into his 30th year. Yeah, so some people actually do learn from their experience, I guess. Peter Herman, who's married to Mariska Hargitay, he had a lot to say on this subject, even though this their first marriage for both of them. But he had a lot to say about what we look for when we get married. And he said, if you want, and he was quoting some some psychologist, somebody who'd written this, that um, if you want uh, infinite variety, be with one person. If you want sameness, have a lot of partners. And we said, what? And he said, well, if you have a lot of partners, you're gonna you're going to present the same person, the person that you're in love with yourself. You're gonna present that person with all its great stories over and over and over again. But the infinite variety comes from being who you are with the same person, and you keep discovering more and more parts of yourself. And I just thought that was so intelligent, so deeply, deeply, I don't know, profound, really. Because I dated a lot. I didn't get married till I was 42. So I was constantly, you know, doing all my best material. (laughs) (laughs) You get a performance that works time after time. So we've come to the end of the time we have for our talk, and we could go on forever. But we always end our show with seven questions. What do you wish you really understood? Okay, I guess I, I guess I wish I understood uh, why uh, some people aren't willing to um, accept the reality of a situation, and why we have to. Right. Why does it take so long for some people so that we can get together and fix it? And what I want to understand is why our culture seems to. Uh, work against the ideal of marriage. Half of us get divorced. Now put your brain around that for a second. Half of us. And that, you know, it, suddenly they love you forever. Oh, baby, you're my everything. It's disappeared. <laughs> oh, baby, you're my everything. I like that. <laughs> Question two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh... Well, the best way is to say that uh, (laughs) that's how I felt. I did the same thing. I made the same mistake. I think that relieves a lot of the pressure that an interviewee may feel when you're talking to him or her. Or any person doesn't have to be an interview. Right. Yeah. How about you, Marla? When I think somebody is wrong, I try to, I think kind of the same thing. I I try to say, this is how I feel. Explain to me more how you feel about that so that I can really grasp it because I'm not grasping it now. You know, I kind of want to, I kind of want to get them to tell me more in the hopes that I'll find a connection somewhere so that we can get to a middle place. Okay, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, well, I have one, but it was terrible. <laughs> that sounds, sounds good. Gloria Steinem and I were leaving a comedy club, 
And this man came toward me with a microphone and Gloria was grabbing my arm to pull me away. And I thought, and the guy looked a little bit dysfunctional and I felt sorry for him, you know? So I I thought Gloria was being very insensitive, you know, you could see that this man had physical problems and things. Anyway, he came over to me and he was stuttering, uh, how, 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 how big, big is Phil's penis? And so it turned out he was this guy called Stuttering John on some local show. And she knew who he was and I didn't. So he got away with t- saying this thing to me and I'm being recorded. And I was mortified. Well, you asked, so there it is. I- <laughs> Show Phil. Oh, dear. You can't top that. <laughs> no, I can't. I have a lot of problems with, uh, more than I should, really. But I hate questions like, who was your best guest? Who was your worst guest? You know, I should condemn a person by naming them as my worst guest. I mean, how'd you like to have that answer? <laughs> okay, I, I won't I won't press you on that question. Fourth question, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, goodness. It's called pressure of speech. And I have a couple of friends who have pressure of speech where they just can't stop. And the only way I've ever been able to stop them is to say, oh, I have to tell you, that reminds me to to, to, to try to get off because they're compulsively, they're not going to stop. That, that's a very good answer. My problem is the is is with the opposite kind of person. The guest wherein you ask a six-minute question and the guest says yes. <laughs> Which isn't your problem with us, you can tell. So that sort of leads to the next question. Let's say you're at a dinner party. You're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? I always start with a question because I think people like to talk about themselves. So if I I look at the place card, if I know the person by name or I don't know the person at all, you know, I'll start in with some question that has to do with his or her business or his or her children or wife or husband, whatever I can get into to just show that I'm interested in, in them as opposed to saying, wow, I just finished a great book tour, you know. (laughs) Okay, two more questions. What gives you confidence? Oh, well, mine, that's an easy one for me. Go ahead. When the hands are up all over the auditorium, people who want to get into this discussion means that it is well-produced, somebody knew what would make the cake rise, That was a successful show. I think what gives me confidence is I feel that I am my own resource, that I am one of my own resources. And that's what gives me a a stability. One last question. What book changed your life? Well, I'm embarrassed to say because now she's not in in good repute, but Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged, changed my life. Really? Why? I was 17 years old when I read it because it ridiculed the rigidity of religion. It was the first time anybody said that you needed to rethink these things. Because I was raised in Catholic school by nuns all my life. So I never took anything like original sin. I never questioned anything. And she did. And it really opened my eyes. It made me 
it really made me think. How about you, Phil? Do you have a book that changed your life? Its title is The Book That Changed the World. And it's the story of Charles Darwin. I just think it's an interesting look at how a genius, a brilliant man, was has been totally dismissed. I think it continues today. By Not totally. A lot of public schools have appeared to have walked away from Darwin, too. They don't want the controversy. Mm. And uh, I think uh, we're the poorer for it. Well, listen, I, I really have enjoyed your company during this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with oh, me. Oh, it was great, Alan. We, we'll come on, even when you don't have a camera or anything, just call us up. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much, both of you. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. As an actor, Marlo Thomas first became known to America for her role in the groundbreaking sitcom That Girl. But as well as dozens of other film, television, and Broadway appearances, Marlo is also a producer, author, and a pioneering feminist. She's the creator of the book, the television special, and the hugely influential album, all of the same name, Free to Be You and Me. For many years, she has served as the National Outreach Director for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Phil Donahue created and hosted The Phil Donahue Show, which was later known as Donahue. Phil's was the first television talk show featuring a live audience, and it ran for some 7,000 episodes. Marlo and Phil met when she was a guest on the show in 1997, and they married in 1980. Their new book is called What Makes a Marriage Last. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Cobley Prize winner Alan Guth, the man who put the bang in the Big Bang. At one second after the Big Bang, uh, the expansion rate had to have been just right uh, to an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 14th, to one part and one followed by 14 zeros. And there was no explanation for why the universe was expanding at exactly that rate. And this mechanism that I was working on, which came to be called inflation, turned out to explain it. And I was tremendously excited. Um, I wrote down in my notebook spectacular realization with a double box around it. <laughs> and I was incredibly excited, but I, I should say I was also uh, rather incredibly nervous about it, because it certainly you know, seemed you know, too good to be true. Uh, if it was this simple, why hadn't dozens of other people thought of it before? 
Alan Guth, whose theory of how our universe began, also predicts that it may be only one of an infinite and still-growing number of other universes. To get your head around that, listen in next time on Clear and Vivid. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.